0: Muhammad has not only been the center of Muslim discussions of prophethood, but he has also been the focus for many Christians as well. In the Christian encounter with Muhammad, how theologians have interpreted the prophet, Charles Tizen introduces a wide variety of depictions throughout history and assesses how Muhammad is used in the context of differing Christian doctrinal and social issues. His examples range from medieval Christian communities writing in Syriac to those living in Al-Andalus to West Africa and more. Across these case studies, Tizen seeks to understand how the Prophet was used to support, justify, or contest various positions both within Christian debates and broader interreligious exchanges. In our conversation, we discuss Christian writings about Muhammad from late antiquity to modern times, narratives about the Christian monk Bahira, John of Damascus, early Syriac texts, the martyr movement of Córdoba, Latin depictions of the Prophet, Christian Letters Addressed to Muslims, Mary Fisher, the English Quaker who traveled to Ottoman Turkey, Samuel Ajayi Crowther, the Yoruba convert and West African Christian missionary, Professor of World Christianity, Laman Sane, and what these discussions tell us about Christian-Muslim relations. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now here's my conversation with Charles Teason about The Christian Encounter with Muhammad, How Theologians Have Interpreted the Prophet, published with Bloomsbury in 2020. Welcome, Charles. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this book, The Christian Encounter with Muhammad. Um, it's it's a great book. I think you do a really good job of kind of giving us a wide spectrum of perspectives um, and it's got a very, very beautiful cover, which uh, hopefully pe- will attract people as well. Yeah. But uh, before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit about our authors. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about um, your background, perhaps what what brought you into Islamic studies, maybe uh, mentors or moments that were influential in shaping the, the types of approaches or the texts that you use, uh, what, what kind of brought you to your scholarship?
1: Right. I've been thinking about that actually, um, how I, I got here. Um, I was born in Montana, which really isn't what one would think of as the environment you know, to launch a career in Islamic studies. Um, but I remember this would have been in the early 80s, uh, being taken by my mother to a waiting pool. We were driving in the car and a friend was sitting in the back seat and I, he was just making jokes. Um, and again, this was the early 80s, so something would have been going on with the civil war in Lebanon. And I remember he said something about hijacking our car and taking us to Beirut in the name of Allah. And as a young child, I had no idea what he was talking about. Um, but for some reason, that moment uh, stuck with me. Um, and I look back on it now slightly embarrassed at what was you know, bigoted and not the best joke, but at any rate, I think I was left with questions about what was he talking about? Who was Allah? What did that have to do with the Middle East? Um, And so those questions for a child in Montana kind of, I think even if subconsciously started an interest and took me to a place of finding out more of what was being talked about. I ended up in college in California as a religious studies major, Um, and I remember about must've been halfway through my degree about the time when, at least in the American system, you begin taking courses in your, in your major, the college hired a new faculty member whose focus was Islamic studies in particular, Muslim communities in Southeast Asia. And maybe because they were new courses she was teaching. I'm not sure, but I started taking them and was fascinated. Um, just with the content, and I think maybe it was starting to help me understand questions that I had had. Again, both consciously or maybe subconsciously in my mind, and that was kind of the start. Um, pretty much in college, from there there was a, a little break. Uh, I got married and whatnot, and I actually ended up in seminary, so I have a background in Christian theology, and I think maybe there was thoughts at the time of pursuing ordination of some kind, that, that didn't happen. But I remember even in that context, uh, you know, learning Christian theology and Christian history, what interested me more was when I would learn about contexts in which Christians and non-Christians were coming in contact with one another, or Christian ideas, how they were received by non-Christian communities. And so this kind of inter-religious context interested me you know, more than just learning straight dogmatics. Um, and even the context of Eastern Christianity was more interesting to me um, for whatever reason. Um, and so I began to uh, kind of focus more of my studies in what you might call Middle Eastern Christianity at the time. Um, I planned to do a PhD at the University of Edinburgh with someone who was there at the time, the late uh, David Kerr. Uh, He ended up moving to Sweden. um, And so I planned to go there, uh, but my wife was also studying at the time and they didn't have a program in Sweden that suited her needs. And so uh, we ended up in England at the University of Birmingham. And I did my PhD there with uh, David Thomas, um, who's now retired. Um and so that kind of I started with, you know, childhood questions and went from there into how um some of those questions interacted with different religious communities and ended up doing a PhD in essentially the history of Christian Muslim encounter.
0: Hmm. Now, you've you've written uh a bunch of stuff um some of it uh, intersecting with the, this this book in terms of some of the broader themes. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how this, this project started to emerge as a book and, and how it relates to your, your broader research trajectory?
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, from the start of my doctoral research, the, the broad topics were just a, the history of religious ideas, particularly the encounter of between Christians and Muslims. Um, As I said, I was working with David Thomas, who's perhaps best known for the uh, research project uh, CMR or Christian Muslim relations, a bibliographical history. Uh, That project started, uh, I think maybe 2006 and right around the time I arrived in England to study. And so I kind of was following that project as a doctoral student and helping here and there Eventually, I became and am now one of the uh, section editors of that project. And so from back then up until now, a lot of my work has been looking at the ways in which Christians and Muslims have been interacting and the textual evidence to support what we know about those interactions. Um, and so a lot of my work has touched on specific aspects of that history. Some of it has... Um, led to, you know, books about the help teach those kinds of things. Uh, So whether it's a, you know, I have a textual history of Christian Muslim relations, which collects primary sources for teachers and other things like that. But uh, part of it as well with that, the CMR project, you're kind of analyzing texts that are coming from, you know, the full sweep of that history and across geographical contexts And as a result, you know, you keep seeing similar themes pop up. And so part of my interest has been to look at themes that are more significant than others and kind of gauge the continuity across geographical contexts or across time periods or, you know, where there's um, discontinuity or difference, how can we account for that? And so, you know, the book before this book, uh, I wrote on the topic of cross-veneration, how Christians venerate the cross, why they do that, and the conversations Muslims and Christians would have about that topic. That was interesting to me because it just, it wouldn't be the first topic you'd think of when you think of, you know, Christian-Muslim discussion, and yet it kept coming up text after text after text. And so part of my interest was to look at, in that book, that topic, but in other topics as well. How these discussions open up over time. I, I moved from that to another topic, which was how um, Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, is described as uh, the Paraclete, um, and that I, is still an interesting topic and I think worth more research. But as I was looking at it, it you know just quickly became bogged down with the redundancy. You know, it appears a lot in lots of different texts, but oftentimes the same argument is, you know, written over and over again. So I kind of got bogged down with that and set it to the side. Um, uh, Meanwhile, you know, this other question of whether it's coming from Muslims or within Christian communities, you know, what do Christians say about the Prophet Muhammad or what can they say? This is something that comes up again and again, Um, even in, you know, textbooks that are, are currently written. If it's on Christian Muslim relations, you have to have a chapter on this topic. And I even you know, compiled a book of those theological topics in which that was one of the, the chapters. And so I began to think, well, maybe this is another topic where I can look at how that question was answered or how it was even asked across the centuries and in geographic, different geographical contexts.
0: So this one specifically uh, kind of came out of that work um, and you start uh, almost at the beginning in the sense that um, you focus on a, a familiar character to those that um, know the Muhammad's bi- biography from Muslim sources. Um, you, you look at this Christian monk, Bahira, and um, I'm wondering if you could... Uh, help us think about him from the way Christians were talking uh, about him. Um, What, what was his story? And then how did the, uh, how did Christians in the early period
1: uh, use this story about him? Right. So it, he's kind of a, a common character in lots of different texts and the way he's used as a character kind of depends on the Christian tradition of the author who's writing. And so If, uh, you know, say among East or West Syrian authors uh, or even among uh, Greek Orthodox authors, this monk will become kind of the theological opponent. And so in, you know, a text by John of Damascus, this monk is an Arian. So he's always a heretic, in other words, or usually is. And part of the reason is it's he's serving as a way of explaining how Islam came about. Um, And so one easy way of doing that is to identify a kind of heretical influence to account for the ways in which Islam might be similar to Christianity, but the ways in which it's significantly different or even subtly different. And so this monk becomes this point of influence where he's not only the reason behind the quran or what muhammad had to say um, and so that in itself kind of eliminates the notion that uh, the quran might have been sent by god or might be god's word it's actually the ideas of a christian monk and it also helps to explain why they're divergent from a particular community's views of say christ or whatever theological doctrine it might be so it's a way of accounting for difference and for the existence of something. It can even um, be used to say, why is Islam here? Why is it continuing? Why does it seem to be successful among different communities? And that can be used to reflect perhaps back on one's own community and say, well, it's for our own sin. Or perhaps if we had our beliefs, uh, held them more firmly or more accurately then we might be better, better able to counter these heretical beliefs, whether they're found in another Christian tradition or in another religious tradition entirely. So it's this figure ends up being a creative means by which to do that in all sorts of different genres, whether it's polemical texts or apologetic ones or in apocalyptic texts. And in this first chapter, I do look at really his appearance in apocalyptic texts um, He's picked up in, I mean, all over the place, but in these, in this chapter, I try and look at texts. They're apocalyptic in nature and where this kind of original strain of the story emerges and then kind of develops. You uh,
0: have a chapter that focuses on uh, John of Damascus, uh, who you mentioned just briefly here. Um People have probably heard about him, but can you give us a little background on uh, who he was and the context uh, he was writing? And then how did he view Muhammad? What what were the, the ways he talked about him in his writings?
1: Right. So uh, John grew up in kind of an elite family in Damascus. Um, it's thought that his uh, father and grandfather probably worked for the Umayyad uh, government and probably were part of that transition um, in the early development of uh, Muslim communities and Muslim rule in that area. And so as an elite person, he likely knew Greek well and by this time probably knew Arabic as well. Um, And so he was possibly familiar, if not certainly with Muslim people, but also probably with the, the sources they were working with as well. Um, and so he writes this, actually a really lengthy encyclopedic text, part of which is a, a heresiology or a collection of heresies, which was not an uncommon thing to write at the time. And Islam appears uh, as the last among this list of, of heresies, which is also a common uh, technique used not only to kind of provide an updated list, but uh, the last one appearing as the sort of tip of the heretical spear, if you will. And so as an early text coming from the, the 8th century, it's often seen as a, and it is an important source for what Christians knew about Islam and Muslims. It's often used in that way to show what they knew. And if you read the text or the portion that John devotes to Islam, um, it's you know highly anti-muslim, highly polemical, and so it's often used to show what Christians didn't know about Islam and about Muslims, um, or to show an agenda that they had for at least combating Islam in through literature. And that there's certainly it does kind of um, those sorts of things are evinced in the text., uh, but I think if you perhaps dig a little deeper or consider how John is developing his thoughts, a lot of what emerges is his familiarity with Islamic sources and the ways in which he was probably um, having those the information in those sources filtered through conversations with Muslims. Uh, the result that, that comes out of the other end, of course, is still something highly anti-Muslim and highly polemical. So what he did with this information is... Uh, perhaps different than how he was uh, receiving it. But what is interesting, I think, and what I tried to to show in this chapter is how he was interacting with Muslims who were clearly having a discussion about how to interpret passages of the Quran. Uh, in this chapter, I think uh, portions of the second surah appear. Uh, and you see kind of the early development of the Quran kind of as a canon. Um, and how Muslims were interacting with interpretation or or interpreting the text. And then once it gets in John's hands, he uses that with an agenda to uh, essentially discount Muhammad as a prophet. And so it's not so much that Islam is perhaps a lie or Muhammad is a completely false prophet, although he does use that term. But what you see is this attempt to kind of subordinate islam and muhammad as inferior and so he he's able to acknowledge that islam is not a set of pagan beliefs it is in fact a monotheism a belief in one true god but the ways in which it deviates from true religion is kind of what makes it inferior and in turn what makes muhammad an inferior prophet He may have been a prophet. He may have achieved certain things, but it falls short of a Christian ideal, for John anyway.
0: And this is, I think, one of the uh, strengths of the book is you provide a a whole spectrum of Christian perspectives, right? You show the variety of Christian perspectives. And uh, this, I think, comes through really strongly, actually, in the, the next two chapters in the book, chapters three and four, where you're looking at uh, different Syrian Christians and uh, how Muhammad is depicted in early Syriac texts. Um, So can can you just give us a little bit of background on uh, who East and West Syrian Christians are, what the differences might be, Um, you know, what's what's the environment they would be encountering Muslims? Um, And then how
1: did they talk about Muhammad?
0: What were some of the differences between uh, the, the texts coming from these communities?
1: Right, um, well, first, I, I mean, perhaps it'd be helpful a, a bit of background of why I thought to include those. I, I think I was interested in including uh, sources from these perspectives anyway. Uh, but as I was writing, in fact, I was working on the book and it was even in contract, uh, I then learned that uh, John Tolan, who many are familiar with, I'm sure, was had just published a book in French at the time. On this very same topic, basically how Christians interpreted the Prophet Muhammad, and that eventually was translated into English um, and put out by Princeton University Press, and it's a good book. Uh, I, at first, I kind of panicked because I discovered, oh, you know, he's just written the same right. book that I'm <laughs> yeah. that I'm writing, um, and I know John, but not well enough to where we would have had this dis- this discussion. So when I saw the at least the French version, I noticed. Um, of course as he would do given his expertise he really focused more on european views of muhammad or european christian views of muhammad and there's some reflection there on eastern sources but more how they were influencing these european views so i i breathed a little sigh of relief and kind of adjusted my kind of table of contents and that kind of made all, all you know these East and West Syrian sources all the more important, at least in the context of, of my book, um, because this this whole Eastern um, set of images, if you like, is not one uh, that's often covered. It, it is in various sources, but they're not usually collected like they are, or like at least I, like I attempt to do in this book. And so, yes, you have um, essentially uh, East Syrian authors and West Syrian authors, these are terms used to re- essentially reflect different uh, liturgical concerns or different liturgies. And they also reflect the different Christian traditions that um, are kind of divided along Christological lines. And so some other terms, you know, you might have terms like Nestorians, who would be East Syrians, or Jacobites, who would be West Syrians and Monophysites or Maifa sites. These terms that we're essentially using, East and West Syrian, are used to describe these two different communities. that are Syriac-speaking communities or Syriac-reading communities, um, but are divided along these lines of Christological dogma. Um, it is more complex than that, actually, but that's the essential kind of uh, dividing line that you see on the surface. Um, But oftentimes their texts are much earlier than a lot of the other texts where we read about Christian views of Muhammad. Um, Geographically, they're situated in areas where um, Islam was spreading early on. And so the kinds of of interactions we see um, are relatively unique, not entirely unique, but at least relatively so. Um, you know Michael Penn is another scholar who really focuses on on these sorts of texts and has done a lot of good work um, about the uniqueness of these communities. What I thought was interesting about them in general was they do a really good job of of problematizing the notion that Christians only had bad or very terrible things to say about Muhammad and the prophethood of Muhammad because often in these texts, especially the East Syrian ones, um, they have things they admire about Muhammad. They have lots of good things to say. We have to kind of unpack those those concepts to really understand them. But it, it's an, a very different view of Muhammad than what we might be used to seeing with, say, John of Damascus or a lot of the European views of Muhammad, at least medieval ones. Um, and so you have people like um, the patriarch uh, Timothy I or you have a, a lot of anonymous Assyrian uh, writers who are describing you know, disputations they had with Muslims. Whether those are real or not it, you know, is open for question. But even when they might be literary devices, they usually reflect very authentic contexts where Christians and Muslims were having these uh, very robust um, theological discussions and debates. Uh, But in the context where there's a lot of assumptions of shared values um, or shared religious values, as probably one of the most well-known, at least in terms of scholarship, most well-known ones comes from Patriarch Timothy I, who, when asked by the caliph, you know, what do you say about Muhammad? He has this kind of very eloquent passage in which he says, you know, Muhammad trod in the tracks of the lovers of God um, and so admits this shared monotheism, this shared love of God, this shared sense of of a prophetic value in nature, which again is there's lots to unpack there, but when you you know, put the pages side by side with something like maybe John of Damascus or some of the other you know um West Syrian authors, for instance, um, there's a remarkable difference. Um, And so part of what I wanted to do was kind of, again, problematize our assumptions when it comes to Christian views of Muhammad or the history of those ideas. And also kind of push uh, some new thinking uh, with regards to uh, some of these authors. And I think try especially to show what appears to be a kind of a shared tradition across these different, between East Syrian and West Syrians, perhaps where they're drawing from very, um, if not actual sources, at least shared traditions about how to think about Islam, how to think about Muhammad. Um, And so you see these kinds of of views that track across centuries and across different texts um, where you have, they're not only unique views, but the fact that they appear consistently within these Syriac texts, I find quite interesting.
0: Um, you you move from uh, this context to Spain in the in the next chapter, and you look at um, a, a martyr's movement in the ninth century, um, and Muhammad uh, kind of plays an a, a interesting role in um, how these Christians are 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 being portrayed and in, in, in terms of their motives and actions. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about this this Christian community that you focus on and, uh, or, or these Christian figures and how Muhammad, um, kind of fit into the narratives of their martyrdom.
1: Yeah. I mean, it kind of known popularly as the court martyrs or, um, it's a topic that, um, I suppose it would be a bad pun to say it's a topic that's been Fairly well beaten to death in scholarship, uh, and sometimes it's been, you know, used to show, you know, or defend the position that Christians and Muslims are inevitably uh, in, in conflict with one another. You know, so look at these Christians who were um, executed, almost not in mass, but uh, in large numbers by uh, Muslim leaders. Um, so you have that line, or essentially using it as a way to describe the ways in which Christians and Muslims, in this case, in ninth century, Al-Andalus interacted. Um, so that you've had a lot of, a lot of of really not very good scholarship and uh, even popular level writing on it. And then of course, there's been uh, other sides and a lot of work done to really understand it better and problematize it and kind of see this movement um, in the context of certain kinds of, of writing, um, which is really trying to at least mimic, um, hagiography and trying to portray a Christian community that was mirroring the early Christians, the early Christian martyrs say, who were reportedly killed in the Roman empire. Um, so what actually happened in ninth century all andalus the list, we can't entirely be sure. Um most rec- recently, Christian Sonner has done a lot of, of good work on the topic and trying to put it in the context of understanding martyrdom. And again, uh, hagiography, I'm looking for the book to remember the title of it um, because I can't, where is it? Well, Christian That's Sonner. That's why we anyway. have bibliographies, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he's done a lot of good work to really problematize how we understood martyrdom and what Was this a movement of people who got together and decided to go to a mosque and insult the prophet Muhammad in front of Muslims and therefore be martyred? And were they trying to push back against uh, culture, a change of language and culture? Was there something else going on? Because if you read the texts about them, and there's very few really, and they're really only written from two different Christian individuals who were involved in this movement, Again, they're very highly polemical, highly anti-Muslim, and a lot of it is a really a collection of telling the stories of these people in order to cast them um, as saintly figures who were martyred. And in the process of that, we get these reflections of how they were, their views of Islam, their views of Muhammad. And so in the context of this kind of hagiography, Where they're trying to defend these people as saints you have muhammad come in as a figure who is essentially a foil to these people um and so he becomes a kind of anti-saint and um the quran and islam or what they knew of islam is again a a kind of very negative foil to a pure religion or christianity and so n- not only do I try and get at one view of Muhammad's that appears in a set of Christian texts, um, but some of the claims in these texts are, you know, incredibly, uh, again, very anti-Muslim, but almost outlandish. And, uh, you know, one of them even claims that, uh, according to Islamic tradition, Muhammad um, said he would either uh, Mary the theotokos or the virgin mary in paradise or take her virginity which is a you know a wild claim very salacious and i mean even for those who might read it today but certainly for anyone however few they may have been who read these texts this would have kind of been the nail in the coffin when it comes to considering the validity of islam or muhammad um and in scholarship a lot of people have just uh, used this to say that this is the first time such a claim appears and it's completely ridiculous. Um, I think actually in my uh, uh, first book, which was based on my PhD thesis, I think I kind of joined in that claim. Uh, But it's another example where if you, you dig a little deeper, you actually see the author, in this case his name is Eulogius, is actually, appears to be familiar with Islamic traditions, not that said that, but where the Muslims are discussing the hierarchy of Muhammad's wives in paradise and, you know, who comes first and uh, what's sort of the lineup um, in terms of precedence. And here you have a Christian who somehow reads that or overhears this, these traditions being discussed and either bungles it or deliberately bungles it in order to create something, you know, much more terrible than what it is. But, what it shows is instead of this idea of Christians being completely unfamiliar with Islam or Muslims and then just making stuff up, uh, that does happen, but um, maybe not always, in, or at least like we would think. In this case, you have Christians who are familiar with Islam but not handling it well or deliberately mishandling it in order to create a an image of Islam or a Muhammad that would kind of ensure, or they at least they hoped would ensure that would drive Christians and Muslims apart, which at least for these authors who are making an account of the Orban Christian community, seems to have been their goal was to push people apart.
0: Um, You you also have a chapter here on this uh, really kind of interesting, a Latin... Text, which is a translation of an Arabic text written by a convert, and uh, there's kind of this strange relationship between the two texts themselves. Um, but then you're able to to kind of bring them together through through your own analysis. Um, what what's going on with these these texts? Because they, they seem rather unique. Um, how does Muhammad fare within their uh, description? Um, and and what's how, what's the relationship between the two? What kind of differences do we see between these, the, the original and the translation?
1: Yeah, this is coming from chapter seven of the book where um, I'm discussing a Latin text called, well, the short name for it is The De Libera denudationis, or the book of denuding or exposing, in which the author is trying to uh, essentially expose Islam Uh, or the prophet Muhammad for who they really are or what they really are. Um, And this is, it's been in a lot of texts that have to do with medieval Spain and Al-Andalus because we thought that this is where the text originated from. It seemed clear that it was a translation in and of itself from an Arabic original, but there's no copy of this Arabic original. And so it was always thought that, um, someone within medieval Spain, likely um, what might've been called a Mozarab or some, a Christian who was an Arabic speaker and influenced by um, Arabic and Muslim thought forms had written this text um, for a Christian community in medieval Spain, who was also Arabic speaking and whatnot as a way of making sense of their context. And eventually it was translated into Latin. I was actually um, using uh, sort of going along those lines in my own thinking as I was writing this chapter, uh, because he does make some interesting claims about Muhammad and kind of uses this uh, common technique where you, I mean, in in kind of modern parlance of the literature we might be used to, he kind of unveils Islam or unveils the prophet for um, who he really is. That's why I was including it. But it was actually a, a, a... American Academy of Religion, excuse me, uh, conference, I ran into a colleague, David Bertena, who mentioned that he was looking at this text too, and he had found the original um, author who wrote it. And it was something very different than what most scholars who are working on this thought. Um, so there's just a an example of why it might be good to network and go to conferences, you discover <laughs> things that you uh, at least for it's kind of a nerdy discovery but it was really a fascinating one and so what david bertana has shown and he is you know, shared this information uh some of it he's not yet published but uh he showed that basically an, an egyptian convert from islam to christianity had written this polemical text um and just through networks that go across the mediterranean basin had been picked up and ended up in medieval Spain. And it's likely that someone there who read Arabic and was familiar with Islam um, picked it up and translated it for a Latin reading community. Um, And also took a lot of liberty in his translations um, and added a lot, took away a lot from the original text. And so there's a, a much sharper polemical edge to this Latin translation than what occurs in the original uh, Arabic text. Um, In both, Muhammad is discounted as um, certainly as the final prophet, and Islam as a religion is put in context as an inferior set of beliefs when compared to Christianity. But in the Latin translation, this becomes, I would say, much more harsh. Um, And so the line dividing... Christianity and Islam, where the line uh, dividing a true prophet from one who is not true or a false prophet is made much more stark. Um, you know, why why was this done? Uh, you know, we can only speculate, but it would just seem to reflect the perceived needs of a of a certain community to whom the translator was providing this text. Um, Which is often, I mean, really one of the conclusions, not the only one, but one of the conclusions that comes up, I think, consistently in the book is that these images of Muhammad don't work really well as sort of windows through which to view who Muhammad was or how to understand him. But really are better mirrors reflecting a particular author's concerns or a particular uh, set of concerns in one specific context and community.
0: In the next chapter, you you shift in terms of uh, in terms of audience for the writings that you're looking at, um, in the sense that you move to some letters addressed to to Muslims themselves. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about the depiction of Muhammad in these in these letters? What what might they tell us about Christian Muslim relations at the time,
1: um, and
0: what was the reception of these letters?
1: Right. So, this is uh, a man named Paul of Antioch who uh, writes a letter as an account for a trip he took in order to discover more about Islam and provide more information about Islam, which was a letter that was picked up later uh, in what the edition that we know it as, is the the letter to the people of Cyprus, um, which then was circulated among uh, Muslims some particular notable ones like Ibn Taymiyyah and um, al-Tamashki in Damascus, of course. And so we hear you see a lot of times, you know, these texts are meant for internal consumption. You know, you have a Christian, for example, writing about Islam or writing about about Muslims, and you're tempted to think that, you know, Muslims are reading this and might respond. And oftentimes this just isn't the case. They're writing for fellow Christians. Uh, But here are a set of examples in which um, texts were written and sent to specific Muslims who then responded directly to the texts. Um, And so it's a really interesting example where there's an authentic uh, exchange going on. And you can kind of see it almost in real time as there uh, went back and forth, not back and forth, but as one reached out to the other and the other responded. Um, in all cases, the the Muslims who responded were not convinced by the claims and, you know, thoroughly denounced them. Um, Essentially, on the surface, what uh, the original letter from Paul of Antioch was arguing was that uh, Muhammad may have been a prophet or was a prophet, but only really for the Arabs. Um, And so there's a sense in which this sounds very, uh, you know, appreciative, but the context is in, is that his prophethood was meant for the Arabs, anything that he had to say Christians already were aware of. And so it really kind of stanchions off uh, what Muhammad's prophethood meant. And then the other bold claim is that when read correctly, which meant when read by Christians, then the Quran could be uh, most accurately understood and then these, these letters proceed to do that and kind of show the true meaning of various passages of the quran and of course when you know the muslims picked that up they responded uh you know very harshly kind of really really putting that those claims into context and denouncing them but in either case, Muhammad is not this universal prophet, but in the Christian texts, while he is acknowledged as a prophet, it's really only for a specific community. The effect of that is that Muhammad brings uh, Arabs close from, further away from paganism, closer to monotheism, and in so doing does a kind of Christian service by bringing them closer to the ability to believe in Christ as Christians understand him. Um, so it's, it's a very creative um, set of arguments, but one that was not at all convincing to the Muslims who read them and, and responded.
0: Um, you, you move on to a really interesting person named uh, Mary Fisher, who was an English Quaker who traveled to Ottoman Turkey and uh, led what seemed like a fascinating life. Um, can you, can you tell us who she was, what's her story, um, and then how it was remembered by others? Cause this is, this is part of the story as well.
1: Yeah, this was part of my effort to transition kind of beyond the usual set of geographies and languages, um, that we refer to in, in topics of this nature and kind of push it out into a different areas. It was a challenge because while there's evidence or you know texts that discuss Christian texts that discuss Muhammad from you know all different regions at this period the New World or or in you know South Asia Southeast Asia a lot of times the claims they're making are the exact claims that we've read before and sometimes they are uh, you know directly quoting or copying you know let's say John of Damascus or other authors that are much better known. And so with um, Mary Fisher, it was interesting because her, I mean, she has a kind of a fascinating story, um, but it also brings in Quaker thought or early Quaker thought, which is, I felt unique. And then she, of course she has this uh, encounter with the Ottoman Sultan at the time, uh, which is, uh, I mean, I mean, it frankly would make an interesting film. It's just an almost ridiculous story of. Not ridiculous which is crazy where where she went and and the kinds of encounters she had um but i mean essentially as a quaker as a very early quaker she was a part of a community that was considered christian dissidents um or a heretical sect you might might say and so they were often uh persecuted and squelched um for their beliefs which uh you know, deviated in various ways from, at least in, that, in those contexts, mainstream Christian belief. And so uh, at the time, the Quaker view of the Holy Spirit and the ways in which individual Christians or individual uh, Quaker Christians um, or friends, as they were known, um, could function as prophets and mouthpieces of God, you know, and it didn't matter who you were or your gender, that's just how the Spirit operated um this was problematic from a christian pers- or from at least you know the church of england's perspective for instance uh but then that filtered over into the new world and the american colonies where these christian dissidents may have gone to but were also tried to um the larger community tried to put them down um as well and so you have a context in which um I mean, in the Quaker context, the idea was to go to the whole world with this message and with these sets of beliefs. So the fact that Quakers found themselves in the Ottoman Empire is not surprising, you know, that a woman, in this case, Mary Fisher found herself there is also not surprising. Um, But it's very intriguing that she did um, find herself, you know, kept going. And in the company of the Ottoman Sultan himself, where they had this discussion about Islam and Christian beliefs. And of course the question came up, well, what do you say, Mary Fisher, what do you say about Muhammad? And her response was, was he a prophet? Essentially, sure, Uh, because we all can be, um, but we really will only know the value of their prophetic nature by the fruits of their lives or, or their message. And that's where she leaves it, and that's where the at least the account of their discussion Ends. I think that in itself is kind of a adds an interesting element to this story of what Christians had to say about Muhammad, and it's kind of a perspective that gets picked up here and there, especially at least in the last fifty years, where Christians are trying to think about what makes a prophet and what doesn't make a prophet, um, and how can that apply to non-Christian figures. Uh, but then, in in this context, the ways in which this very good-natured exchange is between Mary Fisher and the, the sultan is used to kind of show the ways in which non-Christian communities could be very tolerant of those who with whom they didn't share a religion. So Muslims, in this case, tolerated a Quaker. And if that can happen, then surely it could happen in the American colonies. Or if even the sultan can uh be tolerant of and kind to a quaker woman then what does that say about the church of england or the wider christian community in the colonies how terrible must they be if even you know this ottoman muslim can be uh tolerant and so again you have sort of muhammad and the questions surrounding him he often gets conscripted by non-muslim communities into all different kinds of service whether they're battling, you know, a heretic or a dissident or um, often just used in ways that, I mean, the intent was never there. But taken outside of an Islamic context is becomes something altogether more than what he was originally.
0: Um, you, you moved from uh, the Quakers to a, a Yoruba convert um, who became a, a prominent missionary in West Africa. Um, this also was a really fascinating story. Can, can you tell us about uh, this person, Samuel Ajayi Crowther? And uh, what what was his missionary effort all about and how did his knowledge of uh, Islam and Muhammad uh, shape his activities?
1: Right, so uh, he was born and emerged in a context where there were Christians, there were Muslim communities Um, And there were communities of what he would have called pagan communities um, or indigenous religionists. Um, And so certainly part of his knowledge came from this context, uh, but he uh, became a convert in part as a result of uh, the slave trade. I'm not suggesting that's a positive result of the slave trade, but just that's the context in which it occurred, in which he was captured and then um, escaped and eventually became a convert within the context of the of the Church of England in West Africa. And so a lot of his training um, and education came from a Christian context. Um, and so as he looks at the non-Christians around him, uh, the Bible as a source for not only apologetics, but for truth becomes paramount. Um I mean that likely reflects kind of a, his that Protestant context, uh, but it just in terms of a of a context where books uh, have prominence in terms of knowledge, um, the Bible became the source that he felt people needed to argue from or go to as a source of truth, and so he often used this in his discussions with Muslims, and it even becomes uh, the source he uses when the with respect to the question of Muhammad. Um, and again, you see this this idea where Islam and Muslims become resources that push people towards something. And so in this West African context, it took people from quote unquote pagan backgrounds and pushed them closer to at least a monotheistic background. And so Islam, Muslims Muhammad could be credited with that. But in order for the true flowering of humanity, that's seen um, with Christian truth. Um, With Crowther, he comes about this, he really, not only does he depend on the Bible as a source, but the angel Gabriel is uh, quite prominent in his strategy. Um, And he really pulls this um, from a translation of the Quran uh, by uh, George Sale, who not only translates the Quran but provides a lengthy introduction to that, and he's Crowther is pulling this idea from there, um, where he's using the angel Gabriel as a source of not not the revelation but as a source of God's revelation, and so if that is the source, what exactly did the angel Gabriel say? For Crowther, this the truth of that message is found in the Bible, not in the Quran. And so the result is a way of discounting Muhammad once again, um, but done so in a very different way and in a very different context, even though some of the transmission of that knowledge, again, pulls from a long history, whether it's coming from uh, England or, you know, by way of, of other sources that are much older.
0: Yeah. And, uh, the, the last chapter is interesting. It was a little unexpected, but um, I was glad you brought it in because um, you focus on uh, Laman Sane, the uh, professor of world Christianity who who passed away um, not too long ago. Um, and it's it's interesting to kind of read his life and scholarship in the context of this, this idea of kind of a Muslim-Christian encounter. So um, can you tell us a little bit about um, his background and role as a scholar. And then how did Muhammad factor into his, uh, his writing and his, his ecumen- ecumenical efforts?
1: So uh, Lamin Sané was a, a West African who, um, a Muslim um, who grew up as a Muslim and then converted to Christianity later on in life. And then you know, moved throughout, you know, to uh, the UK and then eventually lived on the East Coast in the United States um, and was a scholar, as you said, of world Christianity. Um, But because um, he started as a Muslim and kind of took this very interesting path of exploring religious truth, and especially in the context of scholarship, um, and then really trying to find a I don't know if this is the right way to put it to Put it from his perspective, but trying to find a religious home when he became at least more convinced of a Christian perspective. And then, you know, was it Roman Catholic or was it Methodist? And, you know, eventually he became a Roman Catholic. Uh, but in the midst of that, not only is a there a context of non-Western Christianity um, that is at play, but certainly His background as a former Muslim and the just the context of West African or the practice of West African of Islam in West Africa Um, what's interesting um, for him is the ways in which biography comes into play so he used in his analysis at least of Islam and of Muhammad he not only uses his own biography as you know how he engaged Islam and uh, Muslim traditions growing up, but then really pulls in um, the way in which biography and the biography of the prophet functions in Muslim communities as a way for understanding him, uh, the prophet. Uh, and in doing so, he does something that is um, almost entirely unique, not completely because it's, it's touched upon, and I try and mention this in the conclusion of the book, um, a few ways in which earlier authors kind of touched upon Muhammad's life as a source of direction for Muslims, but it really is only very subtle until you get to Sané and and then it becomes a focus. Um, Unfortunately, you know, he really only addressed it in I think two essays Um, and I I had had conversations with him, but when I came to this work um, and read it, he had, It was at that point that he had had passed on. And so I was definitely left with questions that I would have liked to have talked to him about and gotten some more detailed answers beyond the two essays he wrote. But certainly what is significant is the ways in which he felt that uh, the life of the Prophet, as you can see it in the Sirah and um, other Muslim sources, uh, you know, Hadith literature and whatnot, really, as, as Sané put it, made Barakah live. It essentially made virtue come alive in the lives of of Muslims and those who were trying to emulate the prophet. And that's c- certainly a feature that's just not at all emphasized and usually outright ignored um, by Christian sources. Uh, the result for Laman Sané was that the life of the prophet became for him a signpost to toward Christ. And so what he does with this biography is something that most Muslims wouldn't and or wouldn't want to um, have happen. But um, he ends up seeing Muhammad as a point of grace. It's just that that is a point that's directing him towards Christ, towards a Christian understanding of Christ. And so, you know, there's, how do you exactly do you balance that? Um, And I, you know, he, that's something that I wasn't able to discuss with him because, on the one hand, you have this um, really vigorous interaction with uh, who Muhammad was for Muslims, uh, but on the other hand, using that as a way of invigorating uh, Christian thinking. Um, you know, is that something that's in you know? There's a deep tension there, or is that a, just a very creative way of uh, you know, an ecumenical or an interreligious way of doing things. that's, you know, I'm not sure what he would have had to say about that, but that's at the very least one of the most unique um, approaches to this Christian question, at least what what do we say about the Prophet Muhammad? Uh, one of the most unique approaches that I was able to find. And for that reason I wanted to include it and in, of course because of the way Laman and represents very unique global perspective, that helped to kind of bring together perspectives coming from uh, what we would call the Middle East and those traditional, or what we would think of traditional sources and kind of pulling those through different geographical regions and time periods, uh, you know, kind of back through from West to East and back again, kind of.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a nice way to, um, to bring the book to the, uh, basically the present moment as well. Um, yeah, so congrats on this book. It really, I think, complements the other literature out there on on these kind of East-West uh, Muslim-Christian encounters. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad you you kept with it <laughs> even after discovering the others are out there. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'm wondering uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about some of the things you, you might have been working on uh, despite our troubled times. Um, things people could be uh, looking forward to perhaps
1: yeah, well, yeah, despite our troubled times, huh I like so many people, um, I've had to be creative about where scholarship fits um, you know in the context of pandemic. Um, so in addition to that scholarship i'm also I've also become an elementary school teacher as I'm you know handling uh, virtual school for our children. um, And it's only very rarely does do those things overlap. Sometimes they do actually, which is always fun. But um, but so yeah, it's been kind of an interesting job to rethink how we juggle those responsibilities. Uh, But I still am involved with uh, the CMR project Christian Muslim relations, a bibliographical history, Uh, there's still a handful of volumes um, yet to come out. And so we're working hard on, on that to get those finished within the next couple of years. Uh, as part of that, there's a, a volume called, um, it's uh, thematic essays. So if, for those who are familiar with the CMR series, there was already a volume of thematic essays treating themes that emerged in the history of Christian Muslim relations from, I think it was 600 to 1600. And so I'm working on the second volume, along with another colleague, I'm working on a second volume of thematic essays to bring it up to 1914. So that should be coming out soon. Um, And you know, this book, The the Christian Encounter with Muhammad, uh, is one, of course, it's coming from my life as a historian. But as I've used it in in classes, um, it's provoked interesting responses among students and um, oftentimes, one of the questions that those discussions end with is, "Well, you know, what do you think about Muhammad?" Um, I'm not a Muslim yet. I'm teaching these things, and and so we're going through what others have said, and so I'm often left with that question. And I've also been challenged with, um, actually, with Sané's perspectives. As for me, as someone who, even though I'm a Christian, I live in a kind of the world of Islamic studies. Um, what do I do with the overlap and also, you know, distance in those two worlds where it may or may not exist? Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, the ways in which Muhammad's life uh, might invigorate barakah or virtue in me, and in a sense, what do I, as a Christian historian, um, or as a historian who you know is operating from that perspective? um, religiously, what might I say about the prophet Muhammad? Um, and, you know, there's certainly so much that comes out of whether there's short essays or there was a, uh, a book that came out recently by a, a systematic theologian addressing that topic. And so in one sense, I don't have, um, I don't, at least I don't think I have the best word to say, and now we can put a, a cap on it. Um, but I am trying to enter that conversation um, not as as a, I guess as a way of continuing it and trying to bring uh, some historical perspective to bear upon it and I, I think one of the things I learned in the book was how even in some of the most uh, where there's evidence where there's a lot less vitriol and a lot more admiration for the prophet there's a lot of ways in which he becomes a he becomes Christianized by authors who are attempting to think about him and understand him, or perhaps even use him for whatever reason. And I think uh, in our contemporary context, scholars can be much more attuned to the ways in which we might colonize a text or colonize a tradition. And we're loath to do that. But I find that that Remains still the result sometimes of our scholarship when, at least in an interreligious context, we almost inevitably end up colonizing things. Is there, is there a way, I'm wondering, in which we can have these interreligious discussions, especially where there might be room for appreciation, in which uh, we approach them as guests uh, instead of as at least unwitting colonizers? And so my work when I'm able to tend to it right now has been to think about the ways in which a historian can be a guest of the traditions of Muhammad and what is, what results from that. Um, and the the easiest thing for me to do is to, you know, and as most scholars is to think my way through that in the context of a monograph. Uh, but you know, since no one reads those and <laughs> certainly <laughs> no one buys them, um, and that's you know that they, those have their place, but I'm, I'm trying to rethink another way of of communicating scholarship as I'm doing this and um, through different types of literature. Or, so I'm I'm trying to write in a new way, I suppose, as I'm trying to think in a new way as well. And so that's what I'm working on, and I hope um, that has a place to come out in the next few years, along with these CMR projects as well.
0: It sounds like a, a a worthy project to pursue, Charles, and I, I wish you the best. I hope you do figure it out, and uh, I look forward to seeing the, the fruits of your labor. Um, thanks again for taking the time to talk to me about The Christian Encounter with Muhammad, another wonderful book, and uh, thanks for
1: being on New Books in Islamic Studies. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, and I'm a listener, and I really appreciate what you're doing and what others are doing with the project as well. So thank you very much.